Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Trino Community Broadcast. My name is Cole Bowden. Joining me here today is Mr. Manfred Moser. It's the same two familiar faces as always. Manfred, how are you doing today? Good, good. I'm sporting the 10 t-shirt today again. Yeah, with a, a fun little hole into your Trino background on the 10. Yeah, the so. moon is inside me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, it's episode number 49 of the Trino Community Broadcast. We still need to figure out what special things we're going to do for episode 50. But for today, pop, we've got... Pop a bottle of champagne or something, at least. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what bunnies, how bunnies celebrate. Maybe all a big fat carrot for us. Yeah, but in any case, today we've got a little bit of a follow-up on one of the talks that we heard at Trino Fest, which we'll go into a little more in a bit. But for now... We're going to get caught up on what's been going on in Trino in the last two releases. So uh, official highlights from Martine. We've added a new array histogram function, uh, which allows you to visualize array data in an easier way. Uh, faster reading and writing of Parquet data, which is a thing that happens in every Trino release these days. It's Raunach, one of the Trino maintainers, has just been on a tear improving how the data lake connectors handle parquet data uh i'm always in awe that we keep finding ways to improve how fast we can read and write it because it's it's every time so that stuff is probably lightning fast by these days uh, and then our last episode's pr of the week which did finally get released was the nessie catalog in the iceberg connector so if you're using iceberg you can now use that with nessie officially as soon as you upgrade to trino 419 uh in 420 we had Underscores in numeric literals, so now you can represent a million in a weird way. Uh, that that allows us to catch up with some of the latest and greatest anti-standards that allow that to be done, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, to me, I look at it, I'm like, why would you want it that way? But it, it, it does have uses for situations where you maybe don't have a choice, or it's the least ambiguous way to represent a big number in a way that's still readable, because commas are no good. Uh we also added support for hexadecimal, binary, and octal numbers. So you can do your base 8, base 2, base 16, however you want. No uh, base 4. Oh. What, is, what is base 4 called? Um, I've never used it. You're I, challenging my Greek or Latin now. <laughs> <laughs> is it like quad? It'll be quad something or other. Yes. Uh, not what? not nearly as prominent. What all or something? No, that'll be wrong. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, not, not um, as useful as hexadecimal. All, all assembly programmers and and like you know old time Smon users on the Commodore sixty four rejoice because now they can see those hex numbers again. <laughs> yeah, it's it's useful for sure. Uh, so you can represent numbers in interesting ways. Uh, we added support for comments on view columns in the D Delta Lake connector. So if you have view columns, now those can have comments that you can describe them better. Uh, you can rename columns in MongoDB. Uh, you can use mixed case table names in Druid, so you're not bound to all lowercase. And uh, when table statistics are unavailable or haven't been generated or aren't working, queries are going to run faster now. Uh, Trina used to get a little snagged on not knowing what the table statistics were, and now it doesn't. So it'll, it'll just do its best effort with no statistics and go faster than before. So... That sums up our, our quick recap. Trino 421 probably releasing today, so it didn't get into this episode's release recap, but that's coming out very soon. Keep your eye on the release notes in the Trino Slack for more information on that front. Uh, anything you wanted to add to any all of that, Manfred? 
Um, on the SQL support for the latest standard with those literals, we also have had the any column aggregate function added now, but that's already documented and also in the release notes. So if you, as usual, right, like these release notes are just the excerpts, there is always more. And um, in the show notes here, you can link and find out more details. Um, in 421, there's a very exciting one coming and we'll talk about that later. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of fun things with... Uh the new SQL standard that just released that we're going to be, we're going to be adding more to Trino based off of it. So stay tuned for cool new SQL functionality, which is going to pose a problem for our guest of the episode today. Uh, Mr. Philip cloud, a principal engineer at Voltron data. Hello, Philip. How are you? <laughs> hey everyone. I'm Hey Cole. Hey man, Fred, I'm, I'm doing good. How are you? How are you? Doing great. Excited to talk about uh, IBIS again today. So if you didn't tune into Trino Fest, IBIS was one of the talks that was given. It's a Python platform for integrating Python code with SQL engines, uh, along, along other engines at that. Uh, and it allows you to write kind of simple Python code that then gets translated into any variety of backend or engine language, including, of course, Trino, which is why we're talking about it here on the Trino community broadcast. But Philip, I, I'm not the IBIS expert. I'm going to pass the torch to you. Would you mind explaining just high level, what is IBIS and what is Voltron data? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so IBIS is a way of writing, I guess what I would call a, like a data frame API and, and data frames kind of come from the R world, um, but they've, they made their way, you know, into Python via the, by, uh, you know, pandas and there's sort of this, uh, I guess, kind of, I guess what you might call like a fluent API approach to, uh, to writing analytics code. So a lot of the, the things you might do in IBIS look very similar to pandas, but it, diverges in, in kind of a few meaningful ways. Um, it, for example, everything's immutable. Um, you can't mutate any tables like with a, with an IBIS expression. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that the, the high level is that you can write kind of tabular analytics, analytics code in Python, you know, in a, in a fairly straightforward way. And you can, you can do it in a way that maps to our whatever 17 backends that we have without changing a lot of code. You typically have to change the way that you connect to a thing because every backend has like a slightly different way of doing it. But other than that, um, it's it's sort of everything kind of looks mostly the same. So it's, it's, it's very exciting, I think, that um, IBIS is available and like supports Trino now because it it's really unlocks a different kind of pattern of using it, right? Like the typical Trino user fires up some sort of like SQL workbench or whatever tool or has a dashboard, writes SQL queries and bangs their head against the wall, <laughs> right? Getting, trying to get the right SQL out or, or like get SQL produced by the tool. And then that's like terrible performance because it's like all crazy SQL. And yeah, the Python use cases are very different, right? Like, tell us a bit about, like, as a as a Python developer that message massages the data and does analysis. Where do you work and what do you do, right? Like, yeah, well, that's a great jumping off point. So, Ibis is really designed for interactive analytics. So, it's really designed to be convenient to use from IPython, which is like a sort of souped-up Python interpreter. It's got Syntax highlighting and like fancier tab completion, et cetera. And so IBIS really works well in that kind of environment. Um, I, like 
I would say that the way that people work is of course different. Um, but I, I actually used Presto when, when it was one thing back when I worked at Facebook and, and, um, and I, I did exactly what you just said. Like I, we'd fire up whatever the internal SQL editor tool was. And like, we would, it like didn't work with hive and then, then, but so you would have to use Presto and like Presto didn't have like writing to disk at that time. So everything was in memory. If you tried to sort anything meaningfully large, like everything would explode. And what I really wanted, like at the time was, was something that I could kind of build my expression as I went without having to sort of like, okay, and I need to open up parentheses for a subquery indent. Okay. It's not the right one. Okay. Now I got to like delete that and find another one. And so in that sort of the space where you're like, okay, I'm going to write an expression and then I'm going to tab complete and see what's next. Oh, I want this method or this operation. I can, I can do that. And it's like, to go back, you just have to sort of delete into the last dot. And that's SQL just doesn't have that sort of capability. So, so you just dropped a bomb surprise on me. I didn't realize that you were like at Facebook in the past and working on like, were you actually working on Presto similar to Cole snuck into no. it or you were just a user on it, or, but also at, at Facebook? I, I'm like, I think I did a couple of PRs just out of interest uh, when I worked there, but I worked on, on data engine on a data engineering team in the search product. So we, so you were a consumer of Presto as a service, so to speak. Yes. And I was a huge advocate. And when I, when I joined people, people were like, you should use hive. And I was like, well, I don't really want to spin up a map reduce job just to like, you know, compute one plus one. I, I <laughs> was like, I, write I, Scala? <laughs> I, no, I, I didn't want to write like, I wanted something, I, I was like dying for an interactive SQL shell. Like that was sort of the bare minimum that I, that I wanted. And then as time went on and I was like, well, Presto is like very fast. Like it's certainly fast enough for me to do, you know, interactive analytics on most of the stuff that I want to do here. Um, so that, that sort of, that, that was, yeah, I, I was a huge advocate for Presto because I, I found it very valuable to be able to get query results in real time. Like who would have thought that would be valuable? <laughs> Surprise. Right, this, is, right. uh, this is very similar to me, like spinning up Daiquiri as the internal query editor for the first time and being like, I didn't learn SQL in college. So I just yeah. kind of, I've taught myself at this point, you know, working in the SQL space for so many years, but like, Ibis would have been great then because then I wouldn't have needed to learn. Like <laughs> I could write Python code, no problem. Writing a SQL query is way harder, which I think is one of the things to highlight as a selling point here, right? Is so Python analytics, Python is great for ease of use, accessibility. People all over the place pick it up and learn it, self-teach it, whatever. Like academics with no computer science background will be writing Python code. Um, which scares me a little bit to know that there's people with no CS experience writing tons and tons of important research code, but, but they do it and it, it runs, but it's not as performant and scalable as a SQL engine like Trino is. And if you're only using Python, you're, you're missing out on that scale and performance that you can get by running SQL queries on really fast, optimized SQL engines. Uh, and IBIS kind of allows you to leverage the best of both worlds where you have this accessibility and interactivity and ease of use of Python with the speed and scale of SQL. And you can combine those two things together, which is 
the best of both worlds. Uh, I've linked the Hannah Montana theme song called the best of both worlds on our show notes. So someone's <laughs> going to click on that and wonder why, but it's, it's there. Not going to play it on the podcast. <laughs> we'll get taken down for copyright. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll get copyright striked and sent <laughs> oh, to God. the void. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I also I, wanted I, to highlight, uh, and I, I listed them here, um, that for the hardcore Trino audience of people that have only ever written SQL queries, uh, there's a few things that Ibis has that still can make it worth picking up. Um which I think, Philip, you mentioned a little bit with IPython is that you have this type checking and validation as you go. It's easier to write. You can call functions with tab autocompletion, which is really nice. SQL editors aren't quite as sophisticated these days. Uh, it's more composable and you can break complex queries down into easier to digest pieces and it's easier to reuse. You know, like if you get 80% of the way through writing a query, you've got a variable sitting in Python storing 80% of your query. And then if you want to do the 20% differently, it's, it's really simple. You don't need to mess around with SQL aliases or uh, subqueries or anything like that, which I really like because once a SQL query gets above about 100 lines, my brain starts shutting down. But <laughs> code, I, I think, yeah. is is easier for my brain to wrap itself around. So I, I, I like that premise. Um, so even like the, the SQL diehards who are like, I don't need help writing SQL queries. I know what I'm doing. There's something for you here. Yeah, I would say at, at some point you're probably going to have to interact with like a like a client or I guess a host, depending on your perspective, another language, uh, right? Like it's it's pretty rare, I think, in today's world that you're going to write a SQL query and just like copy paste the output to like someone and they are going to like do something with that, right? Mm -hmm. it, it usually is running as part of a larger system, either as part of some, you know, complex pipeline or some production system it's not just you're not just running sql in a vacuum um, and i think that's one of the places where ibis can shine because now all of a sudden you have the ability to turn your hundred line sql statement that you know would have to be run as a string in, in, in pretty much any language um, into something that you can parameterize in code that you understand right we on on all of our ibis talk when i say all that's like two on on our two ibis talks that we we like to give we have this series of slides well it was in it was actually the, the talk i gave at trino fest you kind of build up these these string queries and like over time and over you know different teams and people coming and going your query just starts to look like this cthulhu madness you know as you <laughs> as you build it up because requirements change use cases change etc and ibis can really help contain a lot of that complexity and you don't have to worry about oh did i use the sqlite syntax or the postgres or the trino or like eh, does it support arrays etc that sort of thing that is uh the next point i wanted to make is that uh sql syntax <laughs> it's trino likes to say that we're we're ansi compliant uh but being fully ansi compliant is in and of itself, its own standard because no other engine is fully ANSI compliant in the same way. <laughs> yeah. So every SQL engine is different. Some of them, you know, are, are pretty shameless about deviating whenever they feel like it, you know, like SQL doesn't have this thing that we want. Okay, well, we'll just make it anyway. Uh, others, you know, will we'll try to be close-ish. Uh, Trino tries to be very, very close, but ultimately it's 
SQL is not one language. It's a set of different dialects that all kind of resemble one language. So. Yeah, I mean, we, we have a lot of, we, we've, because we have to support so many backends and because we actually do our, our test suite kind of, we have this monstrosity called the backend test suite, which I made a while ago. Uh, like a few, I want to say maybe, I don't know. It was it was a couple of years after I started working on Ibis, but basically it's a it's sort of like a test suite where uh, you write one test and then it runs that test over all of the backends and compares the output to like a handwritten expected result in pandas. And as you, so you have to add, fire up all those backends and they have to all be running and connected and in like that's right, there. that's right. And we have. Sometimes we have like Docker compose that, that sort of does that. And this is like a system that's been refined over, I don't know, five, six years. And so it's like pretty well oiled at this point, it's all running in like GitHub actions too. And so we, we use the same system locally that we use in GitHub actions for CI, which really helps like for debugging. Uh, that's cool. And we've all, we've all like then all, everyone on the team has had to sort of like, you know, go through the, the, you know the hot coals of like each backend's idiosyncrasies. Um, you know, BigQuery has like weird naming limitations that are kind of opaque. ClickHouse is sometimes case sensitive and sometimes not. Um, <laughs> That's like Impala at this point is like pretty like we're we're on like we test against a really old version and we don't get a lot of requests for stuff from there and. Yeah, you know, um, I don't know. It, it it's kind of yeah. Oracle is like kind of maddening in some cases, mostly because its error messages are just totally inscrutable. Well, it's like uh, aura dash number something, right? Yeah, and then it's like you got to look that up, and and then <laughs> some of the numbers are like thirty-seven thousand, which is actually a category of errors and not a specific one, and so you, yeah. And then you then so then you have to like look at the container, the server logs, and it's yeah, it's yeah, and it, it, you know, and I mean, it's nice that Oracle has like a Docker image and that we can run. I mean, you know, Snowflake is I guess like the sort of opposite of this, where it's just everything's yeah. in a black box and um, Snowflake. Yeah, we have similar like challenges with Trino as well. So like you've been talking about like years long history, so maybe uh, stepping back a little bit. Where does Ibis come from and like how long has it been around and like it's an open source project, right? Yep. Fully open source. Um, yeah, it's, it's, let's see, I think, so Wes McKinney, who also created Pandas, created Ibis when he was at Cloudera and Wes was, I, it was, um, Ibis was primarily created uh, for, or not primarily, but initially created to be very Impala specific and to drive the same kind of use case that Ibis drives in a more general general way now, which is like to have a Python API for interacting with Impala. Because in 2015, I mean, there were just, I think you had, you had sort of like, the sort of layers are like the DB API, which is essentially just submitting strings to the thing and then getting back like a list of tuples. And then the next layer up at that time was SQL Alchemy um, which is which is which is a, a great library, by the way. That's been around for I don't know over a decade, maybe two. And Mike Bayer, the original maintainer, is still maintaining it and doing like it's one of the most successful open source projects I've ever seen. 
Anyway, that's the next layer up. And that API is kind of a direct mapping of SQL constructs into Python. So you've got like a select function and a where function and a group by and a from and that sort of thing. And it sort of looks exactly like, like if you could port SQL syntax to Python one-to-one with like the same words, that's what SQL Alchemy would be. For, um, for background, by the way, the Trino Python client implements the DB API and then the SQL Alchemy layer that's available on top of that is, for example, used in Apache Superset. So those those tools are all available for Trino users as well. But now you're saying IBIS adds a different approach? or So I we use the Trino SQL Alchemy connector. Um, we've okay. been playing around with the idea of broadly maybe getting maybe like getting away from, from SQL alchemy. Um, but we're not, we're not entirely sold on that yet. Um, and so for our, for the Trino backend, we definitely use the SQL alchemy dialect because we have a lot of infra, like we have a lot of kind of base classes and other code in the light in, in IBIS that can be reused. If you use the SQL alchemy dialect of a particular backend, um, and so, okay, sorry, I'm digressing, but you asked. No, that's cool. That's what this is all about. <laughs> so it was 2015. Um, so it's coming up on, I guess, eight and a half years old, or maybe eight. I don't know what month it was created in. Um, and let's see. Um, yeah, so that's. It's called Ibis because, well, this is this is what I this is what I think. I don't know this to be true. This is kind of, I guess, becoming lore at this point. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but like ibises are these African birds, and they don't only exist in Africa, but they there are a large number of them in in Africa, and they uh, they ride atop different uh, African animals uh, like African elephants, and I think some of the larger um, ungulates are basically like the sort of the the horned animals like impala and kudu and of course these are names of things that cloudera was working on and so ibis was like you know the thing that rides on top of all these things which you know has a nice metaphor with with the api you know like a high level api for driving these tools (laughs) <laughs> that's, um, that's that's really cool actually so now so that's ibase been around for a long time but now you at voltron data so what yep. does voltron data do and who's who's there apart from you <laughs> yeah so voltron data is oh that's yep that's kind of a uh yep that that's close at close to the one that's that's in i that's actually our our icon which was designed by tim swast who's a, a engineer at google that works on bigquery um this is the does, uh the wikipedia yeah. Ibis. <laughs> yeah. The one that I could find that was Creative Commons to show on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they, they, anyway, we don't have to get too much into birds. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so, okay. So Voltron Data. Voltron Data is like a mishmash of three different groups of people. Um, Josh Patterson, our CEO, who led the Rapids.ai effort at NVIDIA, which was focused on sort of basically bringing data frame APIs and analytics generally to the world of GPUs, or maybe bringing GPUs to the world of analytics, depending on your perspective. Um, And then Wes McKinney is our CEO, created Pandas, created Ibis, created Arrow, which is like, and there's a whole stuff, a whole lot of stuff we could talk about with respect to Arrow too. And, and, and he brought sort of his, his, um, 
Ursa Labs, there's a computing group to together with Josh, um, and then another group of people who, um, you know, uh, um, Blazing Sequel is the name of the company. And sort of, we all sort of came together. Well, I was not at any of these companies, but I joined kind of slightly after this, this merge happened. And what we're, I guess what we're all about is sort of decoupling your analytics stack and being able to kind of mix and match the tools that are best for the job um, with, you know, with, with basically all the other tools that you may want to use. And so, so I can't talk a whole lot about what we're doing product-wise, um, but you know, TBD on that. I, I, I'm yeah. sure you can announce something. Come on, Manfred, <laughs> <laughs> trying to squeeze out an on-the-spot leak of confidential information. Yeah, uh, but but like, but so so Ibis is like a big part of of that strategy, coming from kind of one perspective, which is like the API perspective. And then the other, another key part of that strategy is Arrow, which is sort of kind of allowing systems that are seemingly disparate to kind of talk to each other um, with with very low low overhead. Um, and kind of Ibis over time has more and more like we're starting to build more of our things around Arrow. Originally, like a lot of the ecosystem and product and kind of the space that like vendors like didn't really support arrow too well but now snowflake does and bigquery does and polars and all these other engines have and trino like a, starts yeah. looking at it for sound connectors like the bigquery connector so right i right. think, I oh, think there's going to yeah. be a lot of exciting stuff happening around voltron and trino and stuff like that so keep an eye on on future episodes and release and, notes and stuff. yeah i mean it really shines in like the client to server interaction right so like if I'm a, a data scientist or a data engineer and I'm doing interactive analytics, I want to pull back whatever results I'm going to pull back and as efficient, you know, in both, both in terms of time and space as possible, right? I don't want to allocate like a huge number of tiny Python objects, which are all allocated on the heap. And so they're going to be fairly expensive to, to allocate only just to like throw them away for my next analysis, right? Like I, I, want, I want to bring back things, you know, as close to the representation in the engine as possible, but like, you know, no closer as necessary to bring it back into a client. And I think Arrow really enables that given that it supports so many languages and, and has implementations for, you know, all the sort of core languages that people build databases in. Yeah, talk about that tension for a bit. Like from what I understand, when you are like a Python hacker and you're using IBIS and stuff, you're working on your local laptop, right? Like, yep. or like desktop or whatever. Um, Trino obviously runs on a cluster with like say 500 or whatever servers and has all that brunt grunt there. And then if you, um, like what's the, and then you talked also about uh, GPU enhancements and stuff like that. Obviously that's more of a client side thing, although nowadays it also starts being on, client, on servers more and more. So where's that kind of like border and the problematic things? Like if you have a petabyte table then you're not going to be pulling that locally and then analyze it, right? Like, so what are some of the things where you're like, oh, we have to do the analysis analysis on Trino first a little bit, then suck it down and then do more with Python or like what's, what's some of the like war stories or like experiences you have with that kind of like tension? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, so 
Trino and a lot of a lot of these other engines, and some even some of the like the the sort of the local engines like DuckDB, um, operate. So Trino operates at a scale that's like way beyond all of our local engines, right? It's a, it's a distributed system. It can operate on like I I don't know how big the cluster was at Facebook, but I'm gonna guess it was big. <laughs> we we get up to exabyte, petabyte, pretty yeah. normally. Yeah, and. But there's this space of where of of data analysis where you've got you've maybe got like you know let's say you've got like a hundred gigs of parquet locally, and you're not gonna you don't have a hundred gigs of memory usually, um, and if you if you had a hundred gigs that would be enough to read it in and you, then you could just sit there and look at it I guess but you couldn't <laughs> do any like operations with it unless you had some I don't even, yeah, I don't think you could. So you need something that's sort of going to be able to do query execution in a way that minimizes IO and memory allocation overhead. And all these database engines, Trino, DuckDB, Snowflake, BigQuery, Click, like all of them have, you know, decades of research poured into them. And they are really good at doing those things. And I think with, with Ibis lets you drive them and pushes all that computation down into the engine. So Ibis is uh, is flexible. So if you try to pull back a petabyte, it's not going to tell you no. Um, but it's also <laughs> your not finance gonna... department is going to say no. Right. <laughs> You're fine. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but but it will it will like if you execute a group by or a filter like that's just going straight to the database and with you know a system like trino it's going to be really smart about you know predicate push down and if depending on the file format making sure that you know only the, you know the minimum amount of io is necessary um and a, a thing i guess that's maybe kind of uh seemingly simple but is is a very effective technique to make your tool feel interactive is to slap a limit on the end of every query right like a limit 10. we actually do limit 11 and then if it's <laughs> if more than if more if you get that extra one and we put like an ellipsis at the bottom to say hey there's more than 10 results so just to indicate that like you know there's more here um but that's that's very effective because a lot of these engines, Trino included, will push that limit down as far as possible. And, and if it can, if if the limit makes it all the way down to the source table, it's going to be lightning fast, right? Yeah, Trino definitely. Like like it's implemented differently on different connectors, but like at least all the object storage connectors all have that kind of push down. So yeah, yeah. I'm uh, used to uh, the standard at Facebook was limit ten thousand, even for. Trino, right. they were just like you don't need more than ten thousand results. What are you doing with that? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, that, that sort of that sort of thing is configurable inside yeah. of Ibis. You can even turn it off if you're feeling adventurous. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's one word. <laughs> yeah, if you're feeling like you know potentially spending a lot of money, then uh, then that's that's what you do. Everyone loves uh, compute spinning up unnecessarily for questionable return on investment right that's right especially if we're just if you set if you don't set the limit and then you like if you if you set if you basically set the like the execute the the execute limit to none and then you then you set and you keep the setting for like how many rows are displayed then then it's like yeah i think 
yeah, you're going to get fired. <laughs> <laughs> how, how not to administrate the, the FinOps department will chase it. <laughs> right. right. So uh, one thing I wanted to point out, I, it, I couldn't find the most organic way to put it in, but I do think it's a little funny that... Um, so we always try to advertise Trino as SQL on everything, right? Because Trino kind of uh, federates all of these different backends itself, like the NoSQL databases, the SQL databases, and it all gets unified into the Trino SQL dialect. Um, so I find it amusing that we're in this world where IBIS is then doing the same thing to Python. So Trino can federate your queries, and then IBIS can federate your queries. So you can federate while you federate. And unify everything into SQL and then unify, I don't know, maybe you've got like two different query federation engines and then you can unify those into Python. Uh, so that was... A yeah, it's, it's definitely cool though. Like, I mean, ultimately, if you're like, I think um, Voltron Data also believes in this strongly is like, there's just different tools and different people. They have different backgrounds. They like different tools. And yeah. if there is a choice and you can give them the choice, let them choose, right? Like, I think that's ultimately really good, right? Like if someone is comfortable hacking in, in like SQL in the workbench or using the visualization tool, that's fine. If someone wants to drag and drop, that's fine. If someone wants to write Python, that's fine. We're going to so have the, all uses, right? The joy of this, of course, is that if you have like Trino hooked into MongoDB or Cassandra, um, these are things not accessible in IBIS, but through Trino become accessible. So you can <laughs> interpret your Python into SQL into <laughs> MongoDB. Uh, yeah, I think, I, I mean, that I, I hadn't really sort of thought about this sort of, uh, I guess, additional backend kind of thing, like that this opens up. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's actually a really... Great. Well, maybe we should start claiming that we support, you know, 57 backends or how yeah, many connectors. Leverage your... Well, the connector list on the Trino website keeps growing. So, right. Uh, so, we, yeah, it's like, yeah, 50 plus backends or something. I don't know. Yeah, Trino has a ton of connectors. Um, I think it's like doing it at, at different levels, right? Like, Trino is not going to accept your Snowflake SQL and then run it on Trino, although I know there is a Snowflake connector. Um, coming <laughs> okay i saw it somewhere um, on the way yeah we talked okay. about it at trino fest has not but, yet landed but it's it's on the way okay. the pr is very very mature at this stage so nice getting close yeah and, and so but but ibis like and ibis is not like we sort of we don't we don't want to have anything to do with execution mostly because we're just like that space is very well occupied, I think, with some yeah. great systems. Um, but I think the layer up of, you know, the API is like, you know, the sort of there's kind of a, a sandstorm of like these sorts <laughs> of things, you know, floating around the ecosystem. And and but but Ibis is kind of doing that, the sort of the, the federation at the I guess I would say at the API level, it's not. It would also be like super weird to try and do that in IBIS because it, the, Python is just not the right language to build like a query execution engine, much less one that can talk to like, you know, whatever, 30 plus other ones. Yeah. And occasionally we do get people who, including like some of us internally at Voltron who are asking, they're like, hey, I want to do like a cross backend join with IBIS. And we're like, no, like you need to use one of these other federating 
tools like Trino and and but we have we do have sort of we do have there are ways that you can kind of piece this together yourself with public APIs inside of IBIS for anyone who's like really wants to do it and and the thing that really enables it is actually being able to the backend being able to emit like arrow record batches. And as long as you have an execution that can consume those, it doesn't matter what backend the, that's producing them. Uh, and so, do you want to give a five-second high-level what arrow is? Because I think yeah. not everyone in our community knows necessarily totally. yet, and it's getting a lot of traction, and it's uh, a kind of cool format that we mentioned a few times. So, yeah, yeah, go. totally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so arrow is uh, first and foremost a specification for how to lay out data in memory. And if there's nothing else anyone takes away from that, from, you know, Arrow, that's kind of the, the thing you should take away. After the spec was, was sort of finalized, um, a bunch of tools to represent those, to, to handle that in-memory representation in, you know, a programming language with various different objects uh, were, were written. So there's like, so basically you can sort of like exchange, you know, kind of arrow messages with another system um, as long as it has sort of, you know, has bind or sort of yeah, an implementation of, of reading and, and writing that data. Um, and so one, one, one way, I guess something concrete is like you, you could imagine building like a query execution engine that just operates solely on like arrow tables. Um, there's a few different kind of primitives in arrow um basically there's there's tables which are sort of just an in-memory you know essentially kind of dictionary of arrays and then um there's record batches which are which are sort of you know a potentially lazy stream of those things and it's 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 yeah. an apache project right so it's like that's right yeah standardized and open source Sorry, yeah, I've, I know that the Apache Foundation wants people to say Apache in front of all of the, the projects that they use. Uh, but yes, it is Apache Arrow. Uh, and it's, yeah, ASL, open source. I, it's it's kind of another one of these like uh, federating projects. I don't even know. There's there's like a, I don't know, a category of uh, projects, I guess, built, being built around these concepts of um, having a, a somewhat centralized representation of something and then farming that out to the specific thing that you want to interact with. Yeah, it's a bit of a glue in a way, I think, like, yeah. like all these different components together. So. Yeah, and so Ibis is that, Arrow is that, Trino is that for execution, and there's a, yeah, a bunch of bunch of other other tools like that. Um, yeah, so, so Arrow is an in-memory format. Uh, it's a way to... It, exchange data between systems and i it's not just generic data otherwise it would be like protocol buffers or something it's specific to analytic systems so it's columnar and it supports like all the sort of wacky but becoming less wacky types like arrays <laughs> structs and maps and it's even got unions which don't get me started on unions <laughs> Should we get you started on unions? You know, <laughs> we've got 20 minutes left. <laughs> so so it's a Colima format in memory. So it's kind of like Paquet and Org. So one of that promises of being a Colima format, it's super high performance, right? Like that's one of the ideas. Yeah, it, it's more friendly to 
I mean, this is true for, I think any, anything that's going to store something columnar, but yeah, it, it has like the, the benefits of doing that, which is like instruction sets that can operate on multiple elements at once can do it much more easily. Um, there's a, there's a few differences between, I mean, when arrow first kind of started coming to prominence, a lot of the discussions on various places, Twitter and other places, people kept comparing it to parquet and they're not really comparable things. One is a storage format parquet and one is a way of representing what might be in a parquet file in memory. Cause at some point you need to bring stuff into memory. I mean, I guess you can just let your parquet files collect dust, but that's not that interesting. Um, and so there, there are a few differences in Arrow and Parquet's representation that make it, um, that are meaningful. Um, Parquet represents, um, sorry, Arrow represents array, like nested types a little bit differently than uh, Parquet. Parquet has this like shredded representation from the, the Google Dremel paper from forever ago. And arrow has sort of like an offsets based approach where there's like a, you know, there's like an N element array. And then there's like, I think N plus one offsets that kind of tell you where to get to the next, how to get to the next element, which allows it to basically be a, like have constant time look up to any element of, of a collection. Well, it scales with the nesting level instead of, you know, say the length of the array. Um, yeah, and so Parquet it doesn't have Parquet is designed for full scans, right? It's really designed to just like you're going to run over the whole file, at least conceptually. You may not because you have statistics and whatnot, but like conceptually, that's what it's it's sort of designed for. And Arrow, as an in-memory format, needs to be fast for random access, and so that there's some different design choices in the spec that uh, are reflected because of those use cases. Yeah. We had a like Arrow has been getting a bit more prominence uh, in the last, okay, I guess, couple of years. Um, and we had an interesting discussion at the Trino Contubial Congregation about Arrow and adoption of Arrow in Trino. And as it turns out, basically, Trino has always had an internal memory representation that actually turns out to be quite similar. And at least this is fact as Arrow. So it kind of makes no sense for Trino to adopt Arrow when we already have an internal memory format. That's at least this performance. Yeah. You should have released it as its own thing with this opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> should have, could have, would have, right? <laughs> yeah, who knew? <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I think Arrow definitely applies to those kind of systems. Like, so DuckDB has, a, has like a couple of meaningful differences from the Arrow spec, I think, with respect to the way strings are implemented. Um, and maybe nested types as well. I'm I'm not entirely sure, but they still they, in some sense it's it's like. In some sense that that's actually good because it it doesn't mean like hey we should swap out for arrow because everything's like basically similar. It's like well we can just easily put stuff into arrow and integrate with this whole set of tools that that works with arrow um, easily. Um, as opposed to, I don't know, like roll, like trying to get like you know, a, like a sort of two arrow function into Postgres or something like like that, right? Like it's going to be, it's just going to be like a very different, uh, you know, set of work items that need to be done. 
whereas Trino's like already columnar, right? So it's it's just a copy, right? Yeah, <laughs> just <laughs> the mapping in and stuff like that. <laughs> right. That's cool. So stepping back a bit, broader level question, we're going to get back to the, the surface a little bit here is uh, how much of like a SQL workload do you think Ibis can handle? Like if I am currently doing all of my analytics in SQL, but I want to go hire some people who only know how to do their analytics in Python, like how much of that can be picked up by Ibis and run without issue? Uh. Yeah, asking asking the easy questions. Uh, I see. Um, <laughs> yeah, I he's mean, not I gonna guess... answer all of it already because yeah, he's hesitating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that, well, that no, would also that sounds yeah. too good to be true. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> no, it's it would if anyone who who kind of s tries to sell you something that's like, oh, we can do one one for one x to y is probably yeah, you know, red flags, red flags. <laughs> right, it's like, well, yeah, I don't know. I'll believe ninety percent. A hundred percent. Yeah, I, I so I think so. I guess the answer is it depends, but mostly it depends on kind of how much is implemented for the back end. Um, and I would I, I don't know I I am not going to put a number on it, um, but I think it's I think it's high. Like I I think yeah, it it sort of for the back ends like Trino that have coverage for operation like a lot of the ibis defined operations you can you can make a pretty big dent in in your existing sql workloads and actually the fact that ant that trino is so adamant about you know being ansi compliant means there's less weird special syntax that like ibis has to deal with um that would that would sort of make it difficult to get to you know full coverage for your workload um we did recently add the ability to inject arbitrary SQL as part of an IBIS expression. So, and you can actually sort of mix and match, which is, which kind of turns your whole thing into like a Franken expression. Like it's really, <laughs> it can get bizarre if you're like going into SQL and then back into IBIS and then into SQL and back, like you can, you can do that. Um, but I, yeah, don't. And, uh, but that, that's sort of, I think some of the people, at like some organizations that we're working with have been using this to bring in some of their big like piles of SQL that they're yeah, just gonna say. You know, can't be bothered to. I mean, it and not not necessarily can't be bothered, but it's a big job to like take your SQL and turn it into Python. Um, yeah. Also, if if the SQL is tested and proven to perform and have the right. correct results and has been run, like there's no point converting right. it, right? So, right, right, so right. I I think that totally makes sense. Also, if someone is really knowledgeable about Trino and like the and SQL and knows like you know like some of the advanced like match recognize and whatever stuff, right? Might as well just use that query stuff if it already works, right? Like, totally, totally. We definitely don't support match recognize. Um, there's a there's a few like DDL things that we don't support. Like we don't support like upsert style queries. Um, I know that's a thing that people uh, get really excited about, especially data engineering. Um, so, yeah. so what are the what are the plans on the Trino integration? Like, uh, like from my understanding is it's already pretty mature and like basically very useful for lots and lots of use cases. But as you're now indicating, there is kind of like 
a migration to even more features, even more support. Where, where are you at with that? Is that something you're actively working on or what, what are your next sort of like big rocks you want to look at? Yeah, so I think for Trino, like it's probably expanding more backend uh, coverage. Let me, we actually have a, uh, is there a place that I should put some links or? Yeah, sure. Just put it in the comments. In private chat, we can expose them. But um, ultimately, I'm, I'm asking because people might also want to help, right? Totally. Um, so I just, the link that uh, that I posted is is a link to um, actually a Streamlit app that lets you see like which operations are covered by, on which backend. And then at the top, it tells you like the coverage of the API, like what percent uh, you know, of the operations in IBIS are covered. And and so, like, if people wanted to get involved, so Trino is, like, looking at 69%, but um, turning off geospatial will will uh, give it a much higher percentage. Like, if you turn off geospatial, which is only supported by, I think, BigQuery and Postgres right now, uh, you know, it's, it's sitting at around 84%, which is, you know, that's, so you see there's the documentation and the yeah. operations matrix all on the Ibis project website. So yep. very cool. Yep. And then um so yeah, I think we wanna we wanna get into we wanna expand more. Basically I think we wanna fill out whatever's kind of missing from there. And I think all the functions and all that stuff as well. So you see yeah. Trina has lots of check marks, I like that. <laughs> yeah, so if you if you uncheck include geospatial and um, and then also check sort by API coverage. Then you can see that uh, Trino's really good. Yeah. Trino's up there. Um, and I think one one thing that, that has come up a couple of times for some of our other backends, and I think we it's hard to tell exactly whether we should prioritize, but geospatial I know is a thing that people I think are, are starting to get more and more into and we have some. We have the we have the abstractions in Ibis to support it, but it's it's there are a ton of functions, and we just haven't kind of you know done the the legwork there. So I think that's that's potentially an an, an area of interest. Um, we're starting to put a lot more effort into user defined functions, and I know, I think I maybe it was like two Trino fests ago that. Martin was talking about, or maybe it was Dane. I don't remember. Somebody was talking about uh, like these, these like tabular, t these like polymorphic table functions. Yeah, we have and, those now, yeah. table functions and polymorphic I, table functions so more and more. And and like I'm just showing here the geospatial functions. Trina has a pretty rich set of yeah. geospatial functions. So um, I know lots of people love visualizing things on maps and there are, there are heavy use cases around like location-based stuff or like, yeah. you know, delivery and like hotels and all like all sorts of stuff basically. So those are definitely useful. So that's cool. I wanted yeah. to crack a joke about, uh, <laughs> so polymorphic table functions. The first one we added allowed you to arbitrarily inject like SQL for whatever the underlying connector was. Um, okay. So, like, if you're running Trino on Oracle, which has all of its non-standard features, you could pull pull this query polymorphic table function with Oracle SQL as a string, and then it would return a table. Um, 
So Trio is doing kind of the same thing as what Ibis is doing, which opens the door to injecting SQL while you inject SQL and embedding string SQL as string SQL and, and just the layers. <laughs> oh, no. It's like turtles all the way down. <laughs> oh my God. This is I think, I think uh, not a recommended use case. Uh, <laughs> pick, pick one to do it with and stick with that one. <laughs> yeah, I th that's that's interesting. Yeah, I think... What we're after, I think, in in terms of UDFs, is people actually being able to write Python code. Yeah, and... yeah, that's that's what we're looking at on the Trino side as well, and it's getting yeah. closer and closer. But that's obviously um, Python on the on on the like with Ibis, you're running Python on your desktop. That's one yeah. thing. But like when you're running Python on the server, right, it means it's running in the Trino cluster. Yep. Either in the JVM and then the Jython dialogue is like probably pre like no. I, I want to say it's dead now. I think, I think it's I'm dead. Like... Yeah. Okay. Thank you for calling that out. I wasn't sure. <laughs> <laughs> but that now so that now now people are going to get mad if it's not. So yeah. So but, but, but me, alternatively, like if it's not running on the JVM directly, it has to like go native out, and then the cluster has to have native Python installed and like all the like running out of the JVM sort of headache. So there's a lot of things that need to be sorted out that, that we're working towards. So, Yeah, I guess it becomes a big deployment issue, um, especially if people are developing in whatever Python 3.10 and the cluster is running 3.9 and the package sets. Are, yeah, it's like a whole thing. Um, yeah, we would like, I don't know what the, what the thinking around this is, but it would probably be something like where you actually end up having to enforce, maybe even ship python with the trino installer who knows like yeah i i haven't none of the systems that i've seen do this like i think do it in a way that is is i guess user friendly but it's also like a really difficult problem hmm. it, you know so i it's like yeah we're we're probably gonna have to like make some of those concessions as well just like you know, like when you define a user-defined function in Snowflake, you list out all the packages that it needs, right? And then it's going to verify when you, I, I think when you run the DDL, um, that like, or actually, is that even possible? No, I don't think that's possible. Um, <laughs> it's all good luck to you then afterwards. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, it kind of is. Like, it'll run your function and then it'll just fail with like an import error, I think, if, if you didn't declare a thing that you, right? And, I don't know. It's like it's also like a problem that's very difficult to automate because um because of the dynamism of Python, right? You can you can import something without ever writing the word like import without writing the import keyword, right? There's so like like your entire system could be you could have one sort of like import thing. Like there's a library inside of Python that allows you to dynamically import. And so you could just use that everywhere, which makes static analysis of imports basically impossible. Uh, Runtime errors for the win. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. I mean, it's it's just like that. That's sort of the key problem with UD. And the other problem is getting all of the state that's either explicitly or implicitly used in your UDF onto the thing where it's going to be run, right? Are you going to pickle it? Like that's going to present all sorts of wacky problems. And yeah. I'm sure we'll talk about all the successes we had with that in a future episode. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, thank you very, very much, Philip. Uh, 
we're nearing the end of the episode, so there's a couple more things we have to wrap up, but I wanted to thank you for your time. Thank you for going into a little more detail on IBIS, hitting us with a couple fun stories and going into more technical detail on some of the things that make it tick. Yeah, yeah thank, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I appreciate uh, appreciate you inviting me. It was a great, great chat. And uh, anything, anywhere you want to direct people, just check out the ibisproject.org website or... Yeah, it's uh, it's ibis-project.org. We're on Twitter at uh, at ibisdata, and uh, let's see, we're going to be at Euro SciPy in uh, Basel, Switzerland, in August, and I think that's where a bunch of us are going to be at SciPy next week as well. Um, we're not talking, but we're taking questions, I guess. Interact. Aren't you down in the hallways? <laughs> exactly, hallway track. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Philip. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks, y'all. Have a good one. See ya. So, so Cole, let's go back to 10. Because remember, 10? this is the 10 birthday t-shirt. We find, we celebrated 10 last year, but we also celebrated 10 recently. What 10K did we celebrate? Oh, 10K Slack members. That's, That's right. Look at yeah. that. It's awesome, isn't it? Yeah, I... Uh... We were we were watching that one quite closely as the number slowly creeped upwards. So yeah, it's so exciting to have ten thousand people on the Trino Slack. It's been a pop in place where if you're a beginner, you can ask questions. If you're a veteran, you can answer those questions and help more people get used to it. Talk about development, new things coming into Trino. It's a pretty exciting place. So yeah. So what are we doing next? What are we doing next? We have some poll requests to talk about, Manfred. We've got All our, right. our, Let's see our what it PRs is. of the episode, which I think I have a uh, a thing I can play. So, <laughs> we've got two. This is, I think, unprecedented in Trino community broadcast history to have two poll requests of the episode. Uh, They're both fun ones, though. So fun and easy. So let's go. Yeah. So the first one is that we've added support for insert into Google Sheets. Uh, Google Sheets is one of our kind of less talked about connectors. It's Trino is meant to be run at massive scale, and Google Sheets is one of those things that does not scale all that well. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, actually. I've never tried, to be honest. Spreadsheets are always getting hugely painfully huge, and then, then I'm like, oh, I have to look away. <laughs> yeah, well, in any case, if you've wanted to run SQL on spreadsheets, which I, I have in my personal life in the past been like, this would be a lot easier if I could just write a SQL query on this spreadsheet that I'm using. Uh, we, we do have that in Trino, and it is getting more powerful. Uh, it's updated from time to time. There's good community efforts, uh, and we have a specific pull request from Sebastian Bernauer adding insert support so that now you can write to Google Sheets directly from Trino. Uh, if I click on this, is it going to... There it goes. So there, there we have support insert in Google Sheets connector. Uh, this is a relatively old pull request. This took some diligence and uh, dedication on Sebastian's part. Uh, you can yeah, see Congratulations. Well done. Thank you so much, Sebastian. Originally contributed November 15th. So it's, it's taken us a, a bit of time to get there. But this is a, a chunky pull request. So we've got 500-something lines of code. We're adding tons of different things to this connector. And it's it's unique, too, because there's not really a template in Trino for a Google Sheets connector simul adjacent uh, code. So he had to go work this all out on his own, contribute it on his own. And it took some time, but we got there. And now uh, we've got some extra functionality that 
maybe some people didn't know they needed. Maybe some people aren't aware, but we'll be taking advantage of now. But we wanted to highlight it because this is a pretty big effort and it's a pretty big deal. And we're thankful that we have it in Trina now. Yeah, shout out to Sebastian again. And if you're watching uh, and you want to be a guest on the episode and talk about this and other things that you're doing with Trino, we would love to have you. <laughs> uh, and then the second pull request of the episode, Manfred, I'll, I'll let you talk about that one. Uh, yeah, we just had an episode. Ago, yeah, we, we had, had an episode, episode celebrating Manfred. Manfred and James Petty as our new maintainers. And Manfred, what happened now? <laughs> we have another maintainer, uh, Mateusz Gajewski, or also known as Wendigo on GitHub or Seraphin uh, as a middle name uh, on his profile is joining us as a maintainer. And that's awesome news. He has been instrumental in doing a lot of the deep and dirty work to make Trino work with the latest Java versions. He was very, very involved in making it work with Java 17, which of course yields massive benefits for everyone that runs Trino because you get the additional benefits from the performance of the garbage collector and general performance improvements, but also benefits all the maintainers and other contributors because the language features are becoming available. And he's been very diligent on that and like even reaching out to like Apache Ignite and other projects to make sure that those dependencies get updated. It's It takes a lot of work to, to lift a project like Trino up on a JDK because literally we have like hundreds of dependencies. Every plugin has different dependencies and they all need to work on that JVM. So he's been very instrumental on that and a whole bunch of other work. And he's also obviously now very heavily involved in getting us towards Java 21. And um, I'm very proud to be able to say that he's also one of our maintainers now and um, continue. I'm, I'm, I'm sure we'll continue to see great output from him. And same goes to to him as well. If you want to join us for an episode sometime, we'd love to have you too. <laughs> but that's going to be it for us today. So thank you to everyone who tuned in live, not usually our biggest thing. So for those of you listening or watching sometime after the fact, we're glad you did making it to the end. We appreciate that. Feel free to comment on Slack or ping us if you have any feedback, questions, concerns. Join the Trino Slack if you haven't already. Give us a star on GitHub. Do the all sorts of community things that you want to do if you're uh, involved in Trino but haven't done that yet. And uh, stay tuned for some more exciting announcements because Trino Summit is approaching faster than you think. And we might know where it's going to be. So my only hint right now is East Coast. And uh, <laughs> you'll hear more about that later. But... Thank you all, and uh, have a good one. Yeah. Bye. Music for the show is from the Mega Man 6 gameplay album by Shishtaf Swabikowski. Don't forget to give us a star on the Trino repository at github.com forward slash TrinoDB forward slash Trino. And for more information on future shows and to find show notes, check out trino.io forward slash broadcast.